everyone remaining, please turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. This morning we're going to finish the upper room discourse where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in instructive ways. Though we have one more chapter in this section, chapter 17, that's where his prayers will be raised. Now, out of reverence for God's word, please stand, and I'm going to read our passage this morning. If you are able to stand, that is. I'm going to read these passages. Starting in verse 25, Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he receded. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we look at such a passage this morning with great anticipation. We see your kindness to us. We see your provision for us. We see your, your clarity conveyed to us that we might understand our situation, who we are, what the world is, who you are, how we're reconciled to you, and what is the fate of those who are reconciled to you. Lord, we ask now for the preaching of your word that you would guard it, that it would never stray one millimeter away from the truth that you have handed down once for all to the saints. May it be clear, and may it be the words of Christ alone. Bless this time may be pleasing to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, often in uh, many churches, there's a lopsided emotional palate. Palate in the sense of an artistic palate, not in the sense of the way that we eat. But if you think about it, what is the most dominant emotion in most churches? This is worldwide. Dominant emotion. What does that church, if you come in as an attendee, what do you think that they are trying to make you feel? What is that emotion? I'd argue that most popularly, it's the emotion of elation. We leave elated. Everything is geared towards us becoming elated. Now, does that then mean, then, that if that's the common thing, that then the holiness that we pursue is just dryness? You know you're holy if you are boring and dead inside. That can't be right. It can't be that the most fear-causing thing, that, that we can just strike undue fear in people's hearts, is that the most faithful? Certainly not. And contrary to both of those extremes, in the Word of God, the book of Psalms, that is the, ra the full range of human emotion that we see. Uh, the biggest book of the Bible that we have is the most emotional book of the Bible that we have. The, 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 the depression, the, the excitement, the, the, the concern, the, the steadfastness and reassurance 
the joy, the despair, it's all in there. And it's all divine. We all can know that that's how you rightly understand and express those emotions. And all of those psalms were originally set to music, all focused upon the glory of God. So we can see there that the, the emotion palette that we should have shouldn't be lopsided. It shouldn't be make us all feel come out sober and somber, though that sometimes should be the case. And it shouldn't be that we always come out feeling elated and jubilant, though that sometimes should be the case. That we should be looking for the full swath of understanding our emotions and then how they're affected by what is around us. It should all be focused upon the glory of God and then therefore making our emotional experience secondary because we know that it comes and goes and it ebbs and flows. Ecclesiastes tells us that in verses chapter 3, verse 4, that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Those are appropriate in their seasons. So instead of giving some kind of lopsided emotional palette, what Jesus does is give a full-orbed discipleship. And we've been seeing that in chapters 13, 14, 15, and now 16 here at the end. Full-orbed presentation of discipleship. Jesus has said so clearly the world is going to hate you, but God loves you. He said so clearly that salvation is by faith in me, believe in me, but then also that obedience is a necessary outworking of that saving faith. He said that I'm leaving, but I'm sending my spirit to be in you, and it's going to be better. He said, you will have tribulation, but you will also have my invincible peace. This is a full-orbed understanding of what it is to follow Christ, not a lopsided perspective. He's being entirely, entirely honest with his disciples. He has been for these four chapters, truly preparing them to endure to the end. You're going to have difficulty, but you're going to have help. You're going to have sorrow, but I'm going to turn it into joy. How are they going to make it to the end? And then it culminates with verse 33, which we'll get to, Christ's ultimate victory, that he is going to win. And he has already, Jesus can say, past tense, already won, already overcome the world. So this text this morning, these few verses, 25 to 33, it wraps up the, all of what Jesus intends to say to his disciples. This is the last instruction that he's going to give them. After this, he's going to pray for them, and then it's right into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's betrayed, and then the crucifixion process begins. This is the last instructions. He's wrapping it all up, and we can see here the good shepherd tending his sheep all the way to the end, feeding them, caring for them, nourishing them, correcting them, and building them up all the way till the end, all the way till he's done. So our text breaks down under three headings. We have the new covenant status in verses 25 through 27, the new covenant privilege in verses 28 through 31, and the new covenant living in verses 32 through 33. You think about it like this. Who are we now? What do we now have? And then how do we now live? Jesus sums it all up right here. So verses 25 through 27, it's our new covenant status. What our status is now in the new covenant that Jesus has earned on the cross. Who are we now? Who are we? That's what Jesus is going to say in so many words. If we're starting in verse 25, he says, I have said these things, meaning everything that I've been saying up to this point, all of my earthly ministry is wrapped up in, in these things. In figures of speech, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. 
Now, that's a kind of a refreshing statement that Jesus just made, right? He's acknowledging, I've been rather cryptic, have I not? And you're like, whew, I thought it was just me. I'm glad, I'm glad that he knew what he was doing. He, okay, this is all part of the plan. Because think about all the parables and the proverbs and the metaphors and the similes that Jesus has used. The kingdom of heaven is like, and this is similar to this, and he'll just make up a story on the spot about a Samaritan. And, and he's been speaking in these kinds of ways, but he's saying, that's all going to be done. There's going to be crystal clarity coming unvarnished truth about God. They're going to get a piece of that here, but ultimately how it's going to come is going to come through the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, right? Remember, he's promised in chapters 14, 15, and 16, he will guide you into all truth, into all understanding. It's not going to be cryptic. You're going to understand it. It's going to be clear. Unmistakable language will be used. He says in verse 26, along the same theme, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And if you're paying attention and you're re- if you were just reading this straight through, you get to verse 26 in chapter 16 and go, but didn't you just say in chapter 16 earlier and in chapter 14 that you were going to pray to the Father for us? You were going to take our request to him? And then right here you're saying, you're not going to do that? Well, what are we after here? Well, he's after here in a couple things, and it'll become more clear in verse 27. But he's saying that you're going to have direct access to the Father. It's going to become uninhibited. The veil is going to be torn. Do we understand what we mean when we say that? We sing it often. We think about it. Or it it gets pitched often. But the veil divided. The veil was in the temple. A long, tall, thick curtain. God's presence was on the other side. And you were on this side. You could not go inside the veil. You could not go into the presence of God. You could not go and speak directly to him. A priest had to do that for you. So he would go in once a year, only one guy once a year. And he would go in and do that. But you couldn't. But what happens when Jesus is crucified? Matthew 27, 51 says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The, the veil is torn when Jesus dies on, the, on Golgotha, outside the city walls, out on this hill. What happens in the temple all the way at city center? A curtain gets ripped. When earthquakes happen, usually curtains don't get ripped. The rod might fall, but why would the curtain rip? And then, of all things, how would it rip from top to bottom? We're supposed to see the symbology there that God is starting the ripping from the top. We didn't come from the bottom and rip it open where we can reach it and then walk into his presence. No, he ripped it and he invited us in to the presence. Jesus is saying that you will have direct access because of my death and resurrection. A real change is happening. Now, Jesus is really our mediator. We've seen these verses a bunch of times. 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there was one God, there was one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's truly the mediator. He truly does intercede for us and pray for us, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. His mediation, it changes for the disciples at the resurrection because he's not functioning like an Old Testament high priest anymore. He's the penultimate high priest. He's earned access for all of us. And why is it that Jesus is saying, I'm not going to have to be the one just carrying requests to you as if God is 
shut off from you. The father can't hear it anymore, or he can't hear it at all, so I'll take it in. You just give it to me, and I'll go in and talk to him for you. Now, we're talking directly to the father through Jesus. Why? Because verse 27, the father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Faith in Christ brings access to the Father. Jesus paves that way, but it's not as if sometimes we get it in our minds that if it wasn't for Jesus, there would be no hope for me ever knowing God the Father because he has no concern for me. He was completely disinterested in this. Jesus came of his own volition, died of his own volition, and earned it, and now reluctantly the Father will listen to me. No, we are loved by every member of the Trinity equally because they're all equally God. Now, economically, they had roles to play in our salvation and thus our access to him. But nevertheless, it's not as if the Father doesn't love us. And it's not as if he's like, I'm not going to hear them. I'll just take you condense it down, Jesus, and bring it to me. No, we have the blessing to walk right into the Holy of Holies right into his presence every time we pray. And on top of that blessing, the New Testament tells us that the Son and the Spirit are also interceding for us. They're also praying for us as we pray for ourselves. Because the Father loves us. The love of a father to children. Before faith in Christ, what is he? He's the Father. He's not my Father. But when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, how did he start that prayer off? Our Father who art in heaven. Which was preposterous for a, a first century Jew to say, oh, you, can't, you can't be that informal with God. But Jesus told him, this is how you pray. Because of me, he's your Father. Not just mine. You're not just a kid in the neighborhood, and I have an awesome dad and an awesome house. And because you know me, you can come into my house and hang out with me, and my dad will be nice to you. No, you're brought into the family with a full, formal, actual adoption. You are a child. That's what Jesus' death and resurrection does. It makes that prayer true eternally. My Father, our Father, who art in heaven. Union with Christ brings the love of the Father. Do you see that in verse 26? Or verse 27? Because you have loved me, and believe that I came from God. Your union with me, that's what brings you into the love of the Father. See, faith in Christ, it places us in Christ positionally. We're in Christ. We often think about it in the reverse so much of, I need to get Jesus into me. Really, The more effective and the more biblical notion, even though it is true that he is into me, he comes, he dwells within me is that I need to be in him. I need to be swallowed up, immersed, surrounded by him. Because then when the father looks at him, looks at me, all he's seeing is his son. And we see the blessing of that coming in Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you, now you who are in Christ Jesus, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You're in Jesus and now you've been brought near. You used to be way out there. But now you're brought near. See, this is the way that it's supposed to work. Emphasis on supposed to work with in-laws, right? When my daughters, heaven forbid, bring home young men that they're going to marry, 
not heaven forbid. I mean, I want that to happen, but just like 100 years from now, maybe I'll be dead by then. But when they bring that, that young man in, assuming he passes my physical, mental, spiritual tests, and then we can talk to this guy, and, and then, then what will I be able to say? You used to be far off, and I had no regard for you. I didn't know you from Adam. I had never met you because I don't think we can get away with an arranged marriage these days, though I might try it. You, I didn't know you were far off, but then you were brought near, and you matter to me because you are now one with my offspring. And I love you because you're one with my offspring. You've been united with my offspring, so therefore I love you. I love you now. That's the way it's supposed to work. I can, still, I can understand that we see that not happening many times in families, but nevertheless, that's the way that it should be, that I now have love for you, and you can come and talk directly to me. You don't have to talk to her, and then she talks to me. You talk directly to me. And in doing this, what the disciples do is at the end of verse 27, believe that I came from God. That is nothing but an affirmation of the deity of Christ that's interconnected with true saving faith is that Jesus is God. A good man, a superman, a heavenly man can save no one. Only a God-man can save. He must be God or he is nothing. He had to be man to die, but he had to be God to rise again. So that's what they're affirming when they say, when Jesus says about them, you've believed that I came from God, meaning that I am God. This is one of the many reasons that we cannot affirm Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, and liberal Protestants as brothers and sisters because they reject the deity of Christ. He is not of God. He did not come from the presence of God as one member of God. Jesus tags this doctrine as essential to the Father's saving grace, essential to the Father's love for an individual. Now, we may be in a place where we had no idea. I didn't know I needed to affirm that, and that's growing in that knowledge, but we can't openly reject deity of Christ and then have the love of the Father. So that's who we are now. We're these loved children who are heard of the Father directly to him through the sacrifice of the Son, but then also... We have this new covenant privilege in verses 28 through 31. What do we have now? Jesus is winding this down in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. That is plain speaking. It's part of what Jesus said. It has come quickly. He said, I'm going to speak to you plainly back in verse 25. Some of it is here now. He's going to have more later. But he has not spoken this clearly about his birth and resurrection in the Gospel of John until now. In John 7, 33, you see it in kind of a cryptic way. Then Jesus said, I will be, be with you a little longer than I am going to him who sent me. No mention of the Father, no mention of heaven. They think it's just a dispatch from a local king. John 8, 14, Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, but he doesn't tell us, and where I'm going, but he doesn't tell us. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now, he says in verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. That's as plain and direct as he's ever been about all of that. And in that one verse, you can see the Son's whole mission summarized. I came from the Father, meaning I am God, 
and I am eternally God. I came from there, not from any human. I came from him. I am one with him. Next, you see, I came into the world. He came to a place here. That's his incarnation. That's the birth of Christ. That's his life here as a human, taking real flesh. Then leaving the world, right? Now I've come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world. Death, resurrection, and ascension. That's, a, that's the third part of his ministry. And then the fourth one is going to the Father. He's ruling as a king over the kingdom. He just summarized his whole mission right there in that one verse. And the disciples, they get it. Seemingly, they get it. What do we have now? Oh, we get it. Verse 29, his disciple says, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. They heard what he said. That wasn't cryptic. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't uh, shrouded. We heard it. This is the privilege of understanding the word of God. It's only for believers. Unbelievers, they may read and hear the literal words, but the meaning and the significance is lost on them. They can't understand it. This is by God's design. I'm going to show you two passages from Matthew where we can see that it's God's design. In Matthew 11, 25 and following, at that time, Jesus declared, at that time, Jesus declared, listen to what he's about to say. I thank you, Father. This is a prayer of gratitude and thankfulness. <clears throat> I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I thank you, Father, for hiding the truth of the gospel from these Pharisee types who believe themselves to be brilliant, believe themselves to be everything that they're not. I thank you for hiding it from them, but revealing it to people of a simple faith. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That was your will to do that. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who chooses to reveal the Son to people? Jesus chooses that. Now here in Matthew 13, we'll get to see the privilege of understanding the Word of God, 10 through 16. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? That seems like a silly way to gain a following to use these illustrations that nobody really gets. Why are you doing that? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to, one, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why... I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. This is the great new covenant privilege that we have. As those beloved by Christ, the blessing of enlightenment to the truths of God. The disciples were the only ones in this upper room. 
They're the only ones to hear and understand this plain speech that night. Those who have not believed in Christ, they cannot understand his words. Now, before we move on, there's four implications I want to draw from that. That's a big enough idea on its own. Four implications. Number one is that we shouldn't expect unbelievers to act like believers. The unenlightened to act like those enlightened. Of course that person cut you off in traffic. They cannot understand love your neighbor as yourself. Of course that other team is cheating. They do not understand you should love your neighbor as yourself. Of course that business treated, chewed you up and spit you out. They're only after the bottom line. Of course that corrupt politician did something corrupt. We should change. We are the ones who are being foolish if that is what's constantly outraging us. They cannot understand. They do not have eyes to see or ears to hear. So we should expect that. Not that we should bless that and say, oh, that's okay. It's certainly sinful and wrong, and they will be held accountable. But we shouldn't be being affected by it because we understand that. Secondly, we should come to church expecting to hear from God and not a man. That's all we should expect in the gathering of the saints is to hear from God. The greatest compliment that you could give any preacher is, man, you really got yourself out of that sermon. And all I heard was God. That's all that should ever happen. That's all, and we should expect that. We shouldn't be coming to hear the, the opining of some finite sinner. You should come to hear the trumpet blown of God's glory. We should expect that. Because we've been enlightened to understand the word of God. Thirdly, we should have great gratitude that we're under, able to understand the scriptures. We should be so grateful that I can read this and understand it, and it will have a bearing on my life, the way that it blesses my family, the way that it gives me peace, the way that it helps me understand everything going on around me, the glories that it shows me of God. I am so grateful that I can understand this. It should drive us to worship. And then fourthly, it should cause us to bow in humble adoration of the sovereignty of God because I didn't make myself able to understand the word of God. I did not make myself worthy to be able to understand the word of God. I didn't show God a lot of potential, and he said, ah, that kid's got it. I'm going to give him a chance. He didn't, he didn't go, well, he's cooperating with me really well, so I'll go ahead and let this thing happen. It was the pure, unearned, sovereign gift of God, and that should cause humble adoration connected with our gratitude. And the disciples, what do they do? <clears throat> Verse 29, they rejoice. We see it now. You're not using figurative language. Now, verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're acknowledging Christ's deity right here. His omniscience, meaning his all-knowing ability. He knows everything. And his omnipotence, his power and rule over all things, all powerful. It's settled their minds. Now we know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you. Meaning nobody needs to ask you anything and nobody can assault you with questions and bring into scrutiny who you are. Nobody can do that because you are God. Knowing that Jesus is truly God and thus entirely sovereign, it brought them a settled assurance. They're being convinced of that just was like, oh, 
a settled assurance. We get this. Previously, weren't they disturbed and troubled? Hasn't Jesus said several times this upper room discourse? I can tell your hearts are troubled. Let not your minds be disturbed. Perceiving in them that they wanted to ask a question, but they wouldn't do it. He went ahead and addressed the issue for them. Now they're not. They got to the end of this long discussion, mostly a monologue, and they are settled. They're, op they're opened in their eyes to Christ's deity, and it has brought nothing but calmness. If he is on the throne, if he is sovereign, then everything is fine. Spurgeon used to say that the sovereignty of God is the pillow that he rests his head on at night. It's what comforts him when he can do nothing. <clears throat> And their, or, and their understanding of Jesus' origin confirmed his destination. We know that you came from God. So now we get it. You're from God. You are God and you're from God. And it's comforted us in light of Calvary. You talking about this death and this ascension, you being gone. Why, why did that comfort them? Because they were confident in his destination. He, he is God and he's going back to where he was. We didn't even know him four years ago much less where he was born, all that stuff. Then when we heard all that, we didn't know where he was before then, but now we know. And so that's where he's going. And so that's given us confidence, not having to worry about his absence anymore because he will be reigning and ruling on the throne. But then Jesus brings up this in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? I mean, they just said that. Now we know. And this is why we believe, verse 30. Do we now believe? Do, do you now believe? You look at that emphasis and you go, Jesus could say, I've told you all this before. None of this is new. This is all review. Somewhat cryptically several times, but John 14 was just a couple chapters ago. I am going to my father's house and I'm going to prepare many rooms for you to come. You get it now? What's changed to make it real? He's openly questioning them for their benefit, not because he's actually perplexed. It's for their, he's not uncertain, it's for their benefit. Their confidence is about to be tested. They're joyously affirming all of this now, but Gethsemane is coming. Gethsemane is coming in minutes. Literally, you could count actual minutes from this moment to when they're in the garden and Judas is leading the horde of torches and swords coming up the hill. They're minutes from that. They're being prepared for testing. Their allegiance to Christ is going to be tested because allegiance to Christ is always going to be tested. That will always happen, particularly always happen to those whom, has, whom Jesus has truly saved. Do you love me? And I'm going to graciously let you know that you do by this test because the test shows us that. God does test those he enlightens, not because he's confused, but because he's strengthening us. He knows those who are his. He's the good shepherd. He's not confused. He's not trying to figure out who his people really are. He's doing it for your benefit. Think upon Abraham. Back in Genesis, when is he asked to sacrifice his own son? We glaze over that, but that moment, he's walking down this path from where they left the donkeys on the main road, he has, a, he has a, a knife in his pocket, a bundle of sticks, and his son says, Dad, where's the, where's the lamb? Where's the, where's the animal? And he says, God will provide, knowing the whole time I'm about to cut the throat of my own son. 
And then he gets to the top of Mount Moriah and he's about to do it. And then an angel stops him. And then what? What's caught in the thorns? The lamb of sacrifice? The ram of sacrifice? Around the head of the ram is thorns? And then what's the, what happens then? That ram who has a head encircled with thorns is substituted for Isaac? Now, don't we see Christ there? But this testing, when does it happen? Before or after Abraham is saved? Does it happen before Abraham is saved so that God can know, okay, this guy's the real deal, I'll go ahead and draft him on the team? No, chronologically, Abraham is saved in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Testing with Isaac doesn't happen until Genesis 22. And it wasn't whether or not Abraham saved, and it wasn't for God to test whether or not this is real. God knows. It's for Abraham to see. I, I really do believe. Who was it for? Was it for God or for Abraham? Hebrews eleven seventeen tells us, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is Abraham's mind we're seeing here. He considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back because he had already killed his son in his own heart, in his own mind. I've already done this. My faith is already, my allegiance is already with God. And he's assured and he's strengthened by that testing. And Jesus is telling the disciples similarly, do you now believe? Are you guys serious? It's about to get real. And you're about to have to pay for this. But he doesn't leave them there. Verse 32 through 33, we see new covenant living. How do we live now? Behold, Jesus says, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Behold, the hour is coming. Literally an hour away, two hours, three hours away. We're minutes away from this. Gethsemane is imminent. Truly, truly imminent. It is right around the corner. They're going to pray in chapter 17, then get up and walk to the garden. Jesus is saying all of this knowing what's next. He's said all of this. He's ministered. He's poured three and a half years into these men, one of which is already out the door talking about how, he can, how much he can sell Jesus for. Three and a half years with these men, the whole time knowing that Mark 14, 50 was going to be true. Maybe one of the saddest verses in the Bible. And the, in the scene in Gethsemane in the garden, and they all left him and fled. They all left him and they fled. They said, this is not worth it. I'd rather save myself versus dealing with these guards, these torches and these swords. See, disciples, they will fail. Doesn't mean they've lost their salvation in any way, but Jesus is instructing them in this moment before it happens because they believe themselves to be so resolute in their devotion to him, just like Peter did. I will never leave you, even though the rest of these jokers do. I will never do that. And Peter, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to be the worst one of all. You're going to be the worst one of all. You're, you're so resolute in your own heart. They needed their weakness highlighted in order for them to live a life of dependency upon Christ. That's why. 
not to humiliate them, not to show them they're never going to be good enough, but to show them that they have a perpetual need for Jesus. That's why he's testing them. And it's fulfilling a prophecy. Matthew 26, 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's from Zechariah 17, or Zechariah 13, 7, written centuries before this ever happened. The prophet writes, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is all part of Christ's sufferings. His suffering has to be all-encompassing. Most of us will not ever be whipped or beaten, physically harmed for our faith. Most of us. And that's been true for many in church history. But we will be betrayed. We will suffer the same emotional turmoil. We will have that kind of relational pain. So Jesus' suffering had to encompass all suffering and all pain. And it had to be on every level. Just the, the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples who scatter. That's one layer. I mean, you kind of get it. I mean, they, they didn't want to get arrested at the same time and they were afraid for themselves. But then you have the next level up in betrayal to Peter three times, mostly to little girls. But he says, I'm not with him. And then the next level up is the ultimate, like turning him over to death by Judas. He suffers all of these levels. But what does he say? He, he connects these words together in verse 32. Alone, yet I am not alone. Everybody's left me, but I have not been actually left. One of the most beautiful truths that we inherit as Christ's disciples that Jesus can say here. Jesus was going to be abandoned by every living creature, but he would never be abandoned by the only uncreated one. Never abandoned by the creator. If it's true for Jesus, then it's true for us. If the father loves the begotten son in the same way he loves the adopted sons and daughters. We... We live together as a church, as the church, as the body, but we all die alone. We're all going to be on that gurney one day, alone. Nobody can jump in there with you and feel it. You can't symbiotically connect brains and minds and, and experience it all exactly together. It's going to happen alone, but we're never alone. We suffer together sometimes, meaning that we, we all bear one another's burdens and we all cry at small groups and prayer times when we have brothers and sisters who are hurting. But, but I'm not actually in that pain unless it's my pain. Alone, yet not alone. We're never truly alone as the elect of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. This is the end of his life. This is the end of the road. His head is about to be removed from his shoulders. And he says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Meaning at this court date, there was nobody there. Nobody. Nobody that I know of all the churches that I've planted, of all the disciples that I've made, there was no one there. Not a single person showed up to court. But all deserted me. They didn't just forget, they deserted him. May it not be charged against them. That's a next level holiness prayer right there. May it not be charged against them. But here what he, here's what he says in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. No one else came to stand by me and they all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. And if it happened to the Apostle Paul, then we should certainly expect it to happen to us. 
but we rest in the omnipresent, all-powerful, merciful God who dwells in us personally so that we are always aware that though we may be alone, we are never alone. The best picture that I have ever heard of this, one of my favorite heroes of the Christian church, John G. Payton, Scottish guy who was a missionary in the 1800s to the islands that are now called Vanuatu. They used to be called the New Hebrides because the Hebrides Islands are outside of Scotland and the Scottish get there first and they settle it, name it after themselves, kind of like New England. And he's there when, when they're, they're known worldwide as, as ruthless cannibals. They will kill and eat anybody and anything. And he goes on a boat with a wife who's pregnant. And within a couple of weeks, he buries both her and the baby. And then he's being chased all over the island, early times there, or this one island. And, and he has one friend who's semi a chief, and he takes him in from this warring tribe. He, he lets John Payton stay with him. But then he says, nah, it's too hot for us now. We don't want them mad at us, so you got to go. So they kick him out of the village. And he says, hey, your best chance is to just follow one of our guys and just go get up in this chestnut tree. So he does. Let me read you his firsthand account of this. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, meaning these guys, I don't know if they really have my best interest in and I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey, so I'd go with them. I climbed into the tree, and there was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets. So the, trader, the traders, meaning like economic trade, would come and they would give the tribes people muskets, and so they would just kill themselves. It was this cruel colonial perspective so they didn't have guns so I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my own soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If you were thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all, all, alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? And he wrote this book as an appeal to raise funds for missions, but he's evangelizing to people through it and saying, I'd spend every night in a tree like that, alone yet not alone. And we know from Psalm 139, 7 through 10, there's nothing that we can do to get away from the presence of God. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you were there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the land of the dead, you were there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Just as the Son was never alone, but the Father was always with him, so are we never alone, and our God is always with us. Our great comfort in this life of sin and evil and pain and suffering is that even though the road is indeed narrow, it is indeed hard, to put it simply, 
like I would for our little kids. Our God is big and our God is strong. And he is always there. And in verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do, do we see that? In me you have peace, in the world you have tribulation. In me there's peace, in the world there's tribulation. Where is peace found? Only in Christ. Why do we look everywhere else? Why do we look anywhere else? I'm shouting at myself. Why do I look anywhere else for peace? He said it's there. It's in him. It's not in the stock market. It's not in the Oval Office. It's not in my health or my spouse or my bank account. It's not in my Twitter followers or my Instagram followers. Everything else is counterfeit, temporal peace. Genuine, invincible peace is only in Christ. He says it. What the world offers is tribulation. That's what it gives you. Here's what we think when we go and look at the world like peace. We buy a python when it's this big and expect it to be like a dog. And we feed it, and we pet it, and we name it, and we nurture it. We let it sleep in the bed with us. And then eventually it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it eats you alive. What, what were you looking for a dog and a python? The dog is the greatest miracle of the animal kingdom. They love you. They get pumped when you walk around. You can see them smile. A python is not a dog. The world is not Christ. If you look to peace for there, it's just going to eat you. If you look to peace in Christ, you will have it. Because he said that's where it is. That's where true peace actually is. The best the world can offer is fleeting feelings of pleasure that always leave you emptier than when you came. When your peace is in Christ, then cancer and pandemics and bankruptcy and death cannot harm you. Why? Because what does Jesus say? I have overcome the world. Peace reigns over tribulation. Christ reigns over the world. We take heart in this fact that Jesus reigns over the world, that his peace reigns over pain. It rules over it. We may be in the world and we may be struggling to keep this peace or to walk in this peace through all this tribulation, but the world is a vanquished foe. He doesn't say, I will overcome the world, does he? He has not yet died on the cross. He has not yet risen from the grave. He has not yet ascended to the throne of heaven. But what does he say? Past tense, I have overcome because it was as good as done. Christ's accomplishment was as good as done in John chapter 20 as it was in John chapter 1, as it was in Ezekiel chapter 1, as it was in Ezra chapter 1, as it was in Judges chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. It was always as good as done. His victory over the world has always been as good as done. It's a vanquished foe. It, 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 we imagine it like a death blow has been struck, a mortal wound to the head, and it's just staggering around. It's, it's dying. It's as good as dead. The Lord Jesus has won the victory for us. And though we still fight with all of our might, the battle is won. We fulfill our duty knowing that a crown awaits us, that Christ will give. We go back to Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure is come. He knows he's dying, and he's envisioning it like the drink offering in the Old Testament of wine, where you would just pour it out, and you're watching the liquid just fall all the way out, and then you see it all drip. It's over. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not because Paul is so great, but because Jesus is so great. And it's not just him. Who else gets this crown? Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who has trusted in Christ. Therefore, we can live, we can fight, and we can die in perfect peace. Perfect peace. Our anchor holds. No matter how much the storm blows, that anchor is not going to move. Christ calls himself the anchor in the book of Hebrews, and he calls himself the rock in the Old Testament, and now I'm back again in 1 Corinthians 10. The anchor is hooked to the rock, Jesus on Jesus. We're not moving. No matter if the wind blows or the storm goes or the sea rises or the sea falls, it doesn't matter. The anchor on the rock at the bottom it cannot be moved. So we take heart. We are of good cheer. This is the summary statement really for the whole upper room discourse because after this, he moves right into a closing prayer. This, is, this verse summarizes everything he said in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. He wraps it all up. He's told them these things over this evening meal, how to love. He shows it with foot washing. Where he's going, I'm going to ascend to the Father, the coming of the Spirit, the necessity of obedience to his word, and how that connects to love. Bearing fruit by abiding in him, the love of God, the hatred of the world, his death and resurrection, the fullness of joy. He's told them all this stuff in this one mealtime. And then he's telling all of this because it brings peace. He says, I have said these things that in me you may have peace. All of this brings peace. How does all of that bring peace when most of the word describing the disciples at the time is troubled and disturbed? How does it then bring peace at the end? Because it forces them and it forces us into Jesus. It, it, it severs, it destroys our reliance on people or the world or anything, and it forces us into him. And that's where peace is. We have no hope of clarity or understanding or faithfulness or endurance outside of abiding in Christ. We can't do any of that stuff without him. He is and will be their only source of peace and thus our only source of peace. The great comfort that we have is that of resting in the one who has overcome the world. So we can, at the end of the verse, take heart. Or as older translations say, be of good cheer, for we know whom we have believed. Let me read you this quote from the good Bishop J.C. Ryle, and we'll be done. He does not tell us that we shall have no trouble in the world. He holds out no promise of freedom from tribulation while we are in the body. But he bids us rest in the thought that he has fought our battle and won a victory for us. Though tried and troubled and vexed with things here below, we shall not be destroyed. Be of good cheer is his parting charge. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let us lean back our souls on these comfortable words and take courage. The storms of trial and persecution may sometimes beat heavily on us, 
but let them only drive us closer to Christ. The sorrows and the losses and crosses and disappointments of our life may often make us feel sorely cast down, but let them only make us tighten our hold on Christ. Armed with this very promise, let us, under every cross, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we, we have been greatly instructed by your son in these chapters of the Upper Room Discourse, these, these just magisterial words. And then we get to the end. Lord, and there's been plenty of intimidating challenges. We know we don't love each other the way that we should. We know that we don't love you the way that we should. We know that, that we often forget these great truths and we, that we, um, we don't obey your word the way that we would want. We cower and, and recant when the world's hatred rises up against us. We see that so much to fear in our world today. We see it seems as if the, the sights are narrowing on all of our heads. And yet we read verse 33 that your son has guaranteed peace. He's been clear about the presence of tribulation, but the peace that reigns and conquers over it. Who are we to receive that blessing? Who are we to, to been given something totally and truly invincible and anchoring like that peace, to know that you have overcome the world, that what you said then in past tense had yet to happen, and now yet we read it for all of eternity as past tense. Because you have overcome the world, and we are your people by nothing of our own. Father, we're just driven to our knees in thankfulness and gratitude. Father, may that stir us up towards love and good deeds, to gather together, to encourage each other, to pursue each other, and understand what kind of tribulations that we are going through as brothers and sisters, and to do what we can, and to remind each other of your peace that cannot be vinced. It cannot be conquered or, or thwarted or challenged. It can't be dented, let alone dismantled. May we encourage one another towards that, and may that be what others outside of your fold currently see and are drawn into us. Father, we all have relationships of others who are outside of the camp, who are on the other side of the fence that guards your flock. And give us wisdom and give us clarity and persistence in pursuing these people that they might know this peace because we know they feel the tribulation. We, the, the, they don't get out of it, that they feel the unease and they feel the pain and they have nowhere to go with it. They have nowhere to go with questions. And they don't say with the disciples that we have no, no one has any need of questioning you. They question you all the time and deny you all the time and it only adds to their pain and to their anguish. And may we come with the clarity. May we come with the offer of mercy. May we not come proudly, but humbly knowing that we would be in those same shoes were it not for your sovereign grace. And may that mark our fellowship as a church. Father, we have so many things to think about. We have so many things to worry about. Lord, I can't even begin 
to know what's what's floating around in the minds of everyone in this room about their their concerns or their um, their cares, the the business that they run, the family that they are a part of or or leading, Lord the relationships that they have, the tensions and the pressures that they feel, uh, the rejection that they feel, the suffering, just the general pain that exists for all. May we all come and throw ourselves upon this peace, this peace that cannot be dented. And may we rest in that, though we still have tears in our eyes and bruises on our backs, that we would rest in that peace. And may we encourage one another as we rest. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to die. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming of your own volition that you were not arm twisted in, that your life was yours to give up and you did so willingly and you took it back up again. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for making us a people. And though we may be at times a very ugly and impure bride, thank you for making us clean and thank you for coming back to get us. We lift all of this up to you through your Son, directly to you, the Father. In his name, amen.